We're excited to be back in Mark's Gospel again as we begin Lent this week. We're in the Passion Narrative, following Steve's, uh, Pastor Steve's sermon from last week, which was uh, in the story in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' prayer. So, again, the context, of course, is that Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus has been teaching daily in the, fest, in the, uh, in the temple and around that area. And the level of hostility and enmity between um, Jesus and the religious leaders, or their, their religious leaders toward Jesus, of course, has uh, increased and gone off the charts to the point where they've decided that they have to kill him. Earlier in the story, though, they concluded that they can't do it during the Passover. They, feel the, they feared the rejection of the crowds who had, at this, up till this point, held Jesus in high esteem. And they fear even more the reaction of the Romans against, and, their, and their armies and their garrisons against the crowds should any kind of uprising occur. So the religious leaders seem to have concluded that they're going to have to wait until after the Passover until Judas comes to them and offers to betray Jesus to them. That happens earlier in Mark 14. One of the questions, of course, is why was it necessary that there would be a betrayer? They knew who Jesus was. They saw him. He'd been teaching publicly. Uh, But certainly, I think the idea that arresting him at night would cause less of an immediate stir than rounding him up while he was teaching during the day. And I think another part of it, of course, is that there were so many people in Jerusalem as uh, for the festival. Apparently, what, part of what happened was that people would camp all around the city. So there would be, uh, like, so on the Mount of Olives and, and different places around the city, people would sort of camp out. And so without an insider, the, uh, the, the religious leaders would not be able to know where Jesus was, where he was staying, and how they could arrest him. So Judas fits right into their plan. We'll read the account now from Mark 14. This is the word of the Lord. The uh, text is on page 720, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garments behind. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help to learn from your word. We need to be taught and instructed. We need to understand these things and understand how they apply to our lives. So we pray that you would bless this time and give me your words to speak to us. Help us to listen and help us to be changed as we encounter you again this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1962, an American missionary couple moved to a remote village in Papua New Guinea. 
with their son who was less than a year old. They were going there to work among a people, the tribe of people who's, who were called the Sawi people. It's a somewhat famous uh, missionary story. It's narrated in the book The Peace Child by Don Richardson, if you've read that one. Uh, many of you perhaps have read it or heard of the story. It was a, uh, in, the ni- in the 1970s, after the book was published, it became a very influential in uh, the, the process of recruiting and sending missionaries from the West to remote locations to unreached peoples and tribes as the Richardsons had done. The Sawi people were basically living like they had for centuries, like they were in the Stone Age, really. There was very little technology. There was almost no access to the outside world. There was no written language, no sort of education, no sort of structures of their society beyond what uh, was very tribal and, and um, uh, you know, uh, uh, primitive. They were headhunters. They lived in this constant state of warfare with the neighboring tribes. They knew nothing about the story of Jesus. The Richardsons dove into this culture trying to understand their language that had no writing, had no grammars, that had nothing except what was spoken. Uh, They cared for the sick, and they told the story of Jesus. They began to work to translate the Bible. But the gospel message seemed to hit a cultural barrier. They couldn't really understand. They couldn't figure out why the Sawi were not at all responsive to the message about Jesus. They discovered along the way that this tribe of people prized the idea of a betrayer, of a deceiver, of a figure who could um, gather trust, who could work into an inner circle before rising up and turning on the leader and killing him. You can see sort of where this is going. As they heard the gospel story for the first time, they asked a lot of questions about Judas. How did he do this? What was going on with Judas? They considered him to be the hero. They were amazed at his craftiness and his guile to get into Jesus' good graces, only to turn on him at the end. In their view, Judas was the winner, and Jesus wasn't someone good. He was sort of a, he was a, sort of a dope. He was trusting uh, Judas, and, and uh, he was you know, kind of a loser for being deceived. The story of, of their book and their missionary activity there is an amazing one. Eventually, God brought a breakthrough uh, through another aspect of their culture. We don't have time to go into all of that about the peace child. It's an amazing story. Many people eventually fa- came to faith in Christ from this tribe. And I watched a short video this week where Don Richardson and his three sons, while they were there, they had two more sons, they returned to the Sawi people in 2012. 50 years later, to see how God had continued to build his church, how God had created lasting peace between these tribes. They said that they saw so many old people that were there. When they came in 1962, there were no old people because they all had been killed off by, in their constant warfare, that no one lived to, to be that age. And they described how these tribes had become reconciled with each other, and how there was a church, and there were many who were being baptized. It's, a, it's an amazing story. The video was, was powerful. It's amazing to think about how God can work even in a culture that was so confused about 
the nature of truth, about what should be prized in terms of virtue and vice. In our culture, Judas, of course, is synonymous with an evil character who's a, a betrayer. And, and, you know, you're, you, we use that to, to talk to someone. You're a Judas um, in a negative sense. But betrayal takes many forms, and betrayal sort of hits closer to home as we think about our lives and our relationship with God. So as we look at the story, we begin, of course, with the scene where Jesus returns to the disciples for the third time. He's encouraged them to stay awake. They've fallen asleep again and again uh, while he had been praying. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. This event, of course, happens as Jesus had predicted it. Namely, he said, and as part of his predictions leading up, to the Passion Week, that he would be delivered into the hands of evil men who would arrest him. And Judas, of course, is the key figure who takes the lead in this crowd of going up and taking arms against Jesus. Mark calls it a crowd. John's account of it is a little more specific. It can mean a significant cohort of soldiers, up to 600 soldiers. We don't know necessarily if that's how many there were there, but it seemingly was a large group. Um... We would assume also some need for discretion on the part of the Romans and the religious leaders, but it certainly was a menacing force. They came with clubs and swords. They came to arrest Jesus, and Judas is in their midst as their leader. Mark tells us that Judas was one of the twelve. If you've been reading Mark, you of course know that's the case. Why does he mention it again? Judas was one of the few. He was selected by Jesus. And Mark mentioning it, again, I think highlights this fact of who it is really who is betraying Jesus. We don't get a lot of information about Judas' motives in the gospel accounts, but we find as well something to think about uh, in terms of this tension of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Who is, Judas? Who is Judas? As we read earlier, he was destined, the scripture says, to betray Jesus, that it would be one of the twelve. Does that make him, if this is God's plan, how does that make him responsible? This is, of course, one of the great tensions in philosophy of religion, in Christian theology, in church history. If the betrayal of Jesus was the sovereign plan of God, then how exactly is Judas responsible? Or to sort of ask the question in another way, if Judas is acting on his own accord and he's guilty as such, then how is God involved in making sure that everything happened according to the Scriptures? These, of course, are deep waters. We need to go to a philosophy class to start to unpack them. But every so often, I think we need to wade into this a bit and look at the biblical evidence and and really think about... um, these are important questions. I get, as a pastor, I've been asked this question a lot, actually. How is it that Judas is responsible? How is it that God is sovereign? Well, the Bible tells us that Judas takes the initiative, that he takes the action to go and to, uh, to the religious leaders and offer them Jesus. He's acting as a moral agent, right? He's responsible for that. 
but his evil intent fits within the prophecy and the plan of God. This doesn't excuse Judas or make his intent less evil or make him less guilty. There's another layer here. Satan is mentioned in two of the gospel accounts. Luke and John both mention the influence of Satan having a particular role in in Judas' life in terms of this event. John tells us, another layer is John tells us that Judas was the treasurer for the twelve and that he had a habit of stealing money from the common purse for himself, right? And we know the story that in in exchange for betraying Jesus, the religious leaders had offered Judas money and eventually they, they will pay him. He was specifically tempted by money. He was greedy, One commentator noted the best way to detect the source of evil in practically any matter is to ask who profits from it financially. Of course, this is wisdom not just uh, in the Bible, but in all of life. All of this, so what what do we do with these different strands and layers? I think all of the biblical witnesses together give us the clear impression that our experience about how our experience of the way God works in the world is complicated. Right? There are lots of things that we don't know, lots of things that we can't logically exactly figure out, but there are some things that we can affirm here that the Bible teaches, right? God's plan isn't contingent on human actions. God is sovereign. He often uses humans for his purposes, not as robots. God doesn't coerce people. He gives them the right to make significant choices. They are morally responsible, the blame to God. Uh, The blame for sin doesn't go back to God. How we make sense of all the Bible's teaching on this, it doesn't fit into a neat sort of logical system. I don't think that means it's irrational. I think it means that we have to understand some of these things by faith. There's a lot about God that I don't understand and can't understand, and I'm very comfortable with that, right? If we could understand God, then he wouldn't be God anymore. And my point in going and leading us through this deep water here is to remind us that we live in this tension with an incomplete understanding. The Bible gives us helpful perspectives on Judas' guilt, on God's goodness in the midst of this great injustice of the cross. We'll continue to see these themes playing out. How is it that God can use the greatest injustice in human history for the salvation of the world, right? These things don't exactly make sense. We can understand them. We can be moved by them. We can see it by faith that indeed that's what happens, that it's amazing and ironic, but not exactly the way that we might have made it happen. It's showing the wisdom of God and that his ways are different and higher than ours. Just a couple more thoughts before we move on. We see the word for seizing four times in this passage. We have to notice that this, again, is this picture of grasping and controlling. It's a menacing kind of thing that these people are coming against Jesus. We see as well that the sign of the betrayal is a kiss. I don't know exactly what to make of that. Such a sign apparently would have been needed in the darkness, in the, in the disruption of all of this, so that people would know, you know, so that everyone would know exactly who Jesus was and, how, and who to arrest. 
Judas addresses Jesus as rabbi, a title of honor. It's another sort of pain, another sort of, I don't want to say lemon juice on, a, on your paper cut, right? Because it, it's much more than a paper cut, but it's that feeling, right? Why does Judas have to say rabbi? Why does he have to kiss him in the midst of this terrible betrayal? One commentator wrote that, that this is the first example of mockery in the passion narrative that becomes so prominent later on. This idea that Judas would act like Jesus was his great teacher. This idea that he would kiss him because he acted like he loved him in the midst of the betrayal. What a horrible thing for Jesus to have experienced. Verse 47. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. All four of the gospel writers record this little scene. It's an interesting fact in and of itself. John says that Peter's the one with the sword. And John even gives us the name of the servant. His name was Malchus or something like that. Um, Luke records that Jesus healed the man afterwards. Why is it here? I think it just shows that Jesus will not choose a route of force, that Jesus won't choose fighting back, that he won't use the weapons of this world in order to achieve his ends. And then he's modeling for the disciples who will themselves stand at the edge of the sword, many of them, that his kingdom is not one that can be achieved by force, by human means. Yet Jesus doesn't just silently walk with them, right? He gives them something of a challenge in verse 48. Am I leading a rebellion? Said Jesus that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me every day. I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you didn't arrest me. But the scripture must be fulfilled. There's a kind of irony, right? That this group of soldiers, this big group of soldiers has to do this undercover operation at night when Jesus, for the past number of days, has been standing in the temple teaching everyone. Then they didn't do anything to him, right? It looks ridiculous. It looks so excessive that so many would be needed to come with their swords and their clubs prepared for war against an unarmed man who won't even let his own people fight for him. Who feels the need to attack the guy who healed his enemy? Right? That's Jesus' question. The NIV records it in this, am I leading a rebellion? But the sense of it, I think, more literally is, am I a robber? Am I, am I some kind of brigand or some kind of, you know, terrorist that I have been doing all of these horrible things and so you have to come with such force against me? I think Jesus is posing back to them this question. What's been the character of my teaching and my ministry? Has it been my own gain? Am I been this lawless kind of guy who's plundering and stealing? Really? It seems like this kind of... I mean, I wonder how people heard those words. It should have shamed them a bit. It should have surprised them. Should have brought the mob's intensity down a notch, right? If Jesus is saying, wait a minute, don't you know who I am and what I've been doing? Verse 49 ends with a statement, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Usually in the the New Testament, when you see this, then it says, what scripture? 
but, this, the, but that, that the scriptures would be fulfilled, you know, it would go on and say, as the prophet said. We don't have an example of that here, so there's some debate about which particular Old Testament scripture is being quoted or is the one that's in Jesus' mind. Most common suggestions are Zechariah 13.7, which was quoted by Jesus earlier in verse 27, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, that idea. Isaiah 53.12 says that the suffering servant will be numbered with the transgressors. Perhaps uh, even it doesn't have to be a particular verse. Perhaps the idea here is that this whole situation, Jesus is saying, the whole situation is developing according to the Scripture as God had promised that it would. With the arrest of Jesus complete, the disciples scatter. Verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. In a way, this is the climax of the story, isn't it? All of them deserted Jesus and ran away. Those whose feet he washed, just an hour or two earlier, those who ate the bread and drank the cup with him, those who said they would never leave Jesus and that they would die with him, not just Peter, but all of them agreed to it according to verse 31. These loyal 11 of the 12 scattered and fled. People have been curious for a long time why these verses about this unnamed young man are included in the story. Only Mark has it. None of the other gospel writers do. Uh, It's curious to try to come up with any reason why it would be here. Uh, There are, you know, of course, a number of different theories. None can be stated with any kind of confidence. But I think the most interesting one is the idea that this is actually John Mark, the writer of the gospel as a young man. In Acts 12.12... We read that the early church met in John Mark's mother's home, which was in Jerusalem. And Peter, that's the story where Peter is released miraculously from prison and comes to the door and knocks on the door and the girl says that it's Peter and no one believes her, right? In Acts 12, it says they're meeting in John Mark's mother's home. And so some people have speculated that that was the home actually where the Last Supper took place. And that Mark was around And that when Jesus and the disciples left, Mark decided to hurry after them and follow along. But apparently he didn't have time to get fully dressed. And uh, and that's where... So, of course, we can't prove any of that. But it's an interesting way to, to conceive of why this story is here. And the point as well, of course, is that he fled too. That there was no one left. Uh, that, could, that would stand with Jesus. What do we learn today from this text? How does it connect with our lives? I think we notice from the widest angle that the betrayal in the, in the garden is the result of another betrayal in another garden many years earlier when our first parents chose to disobey God. The direct result of that first rebellion was the breaking of the world and the curses the breaking of our relationship with God. But because of his love and mercy, this broken world was not left to its own misery. The unfolding event in this garden is a direct result of the repairing 
of the event of that garden. God is fixing his world through the sacrificial death of the Son of God and his resurrection. Sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, of course, we've participated in that great rebellion. We weren't there, of course, but we've been involved just the same all of our lives in betraying Jesus. All of them fled is pretty much like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We've all made promises to Jesus that we've broken. We've been silent when we should have spoken about our love for him. We've fled from his calling upon our lives. Betraying Jesus is easy, isn't it? It's too easy. It's almost natural according, of course, to our sin nature. There's a lot of Judas and a lot of the runaway 11 in us too, if we're honest with ourselves. For these things we're called to repent. As God gives us, uh, makes us mindful of them, that's the right response. Repentance most simply means to agree with God about our sin, to confess it, and to ask for forgiveness. The gospel tells us that Jesus was betrayed in the garden so that we can experience forgiveness. We must be honest about ourselves and our own sinful condition in order to find that forgiveness from him. That doesn't mean, of course, that we have to wallow in the mud and think that we're terrible and the worst possible people we could be. Sometimes Christians are stereotyped as being this kind of, you know, people who are always a bit of a downer to be around. I hope that's not the case. You have to go through that actually to get to the really good news, don't you? We should be the people who live in the good news of the greatness of God's redemption and his plan in our lives. That's where we should live, but repentance is a part of it. It's a part of the Christian life, and it begins there, actually, repentance and faith. The second thing I want us to consider a bit more is this tension related to God's sovereignty and human responsibility. As we see in the example of Judas, right, the Bible gives us multiple perspectives on why this event happened. That Judas was tempted by money, that Judas was influenced by Satan, that Judas was known from the beginning, at least by Jesus, to be the one of the twelve who would betray him, as the scriptures had predicted. And yet Judas was making choices along the way. He went to the religious leaders on his own initiative He handed over Jesus to them. He stole from the money bags and took their money. His heart had become hardened to the message of Jesus, even though he was with him every day, probably, presumably, for a couple years at least. There's a lot, I think, then in that picture for us to consider. I'm morally responsible for the choices that I make in God's world. I have obligations and callings before me glorify God, to use my talents wisely, to invest my life in the things that matter, to love others, to worship, to share the good news, to be faithful to my wife, to care for my family, to serve the church, to fulfill my ordination vows. Of course, the list goes on and on. God's Word tells me to labor and to strive towards these things, to give it effort. There are moral demands in Scripture. The fact that God knows and moves everything according to his purposes doesn't let me off the hook. If I were to do something stupid and break my ordination vows, then there would be consequences here in this church and in the presbytery, right? So I want us to see clearly that the doctrine of that God is all-powerful and that he's sovereign doesn't mean that I'm not responsible to exercise energy 
an effort in the calling that God has placed before me. It's the same, of course, for all of us. Students, if you don't study, then you might not get a good grade. God has placed before you a calling to be a student and to learn. And your teachers and your parents are going to hold you accountable to work to learn the material. Children are called to respect their parents and obey them. Parents are called to sacrifice for their children, to love them more than themselves, to care for their children and not exasperate them. Scripture is practical, isn't it, about what we're to do in many different spheres of life. Right? So we have moral demands placed upon us. Our lives should be different because we're following Jesus. And yet, at the exact same time, we can take great comfort in the sovereignty of God. Your life is not a series of random events. God knows your days. God has good purposes for you because he loves you. You can't mess up God's plan for your life. Right? You can cause yourself and others lots of pain if you make bad choices, but God's not depending on you in that way, right? There's room for failures in God's plan. God knows our weaknesses. I'm going to fail, and the great news is that there's grace for that. That there's enough grace for all of our failings. And this, too, I think is really practical when we consider, consider our struggles with anxiety and perfectionism and performance. Perhaps some of us need to hear this. God has an abundance of grace for you, even if your employer doesn't have grace for you, even if your spouse doesn't have a lot of grace for you or your children or whoever else, your friends. God has abundant grace for you. And we know what it is to feel judged. We know what it is to feel criticized and to lose grace, right? You can replay the movie in your head of the thing that you, the mean thing that you said. You can replay the movie in your head of the thing that you were ashamed of, the thing that you wish you would have done that you didn't do, or the thing that you wished you didn't do and that you regretted. All of these things are a way that Satan can, can hold us. And I want you to know that there is abundant grace for you. It's forgiven as you confess it before the Lord. Not because your confession is good, but because the Son is good. Because he was faithful and went all the way to the cross to pay for all of our sins. All of them. All of them. We see ourselves as the betrayer, run away in fear. We know as well that we have been betrayed by others. We know the hurt of it. This passage doesn't really speak to that issue directly, but we see, of course, a model of one who is being betrayed. And he remains faithful. And he continues to extend forgiveness, even from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We know what we're doing. We're trying to get rid of you. We don't want you to tell us what to do anymore. We know what we're doing, but we don't. 
And that forgiveness is extended to us, to all of us. Our encouragement this morning is about Jesus. He didn't betray his mission from the Father. There's something beautiful about faithfulness in the midst of this dark and horrible night. Jesus, the second Adam, didn't fail in the garden. He completed the work that he was sent to do all the way to the cross. He did it in obedience to his Father. He did it because he loved us. As we think about these things, as we prepare for the table, we see proof of the finished work of the Savior of the world. He gave his life for you. We see proof of it here at the table. And so we can rejoice in the grace that he gives. We can know that it's sufficient for all of our weaknesses and all of our sins. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful that these words are here, that we can see a picture of your Son. Jesus, we can see a picture of you faithfully walking through darkness, not lashing out, forgiving. And in that, give us the hope that indeed we are forgiven too as we call out to you for mercy and grace. We thank you that the story, the end of the story isn't betrayal for these 11. It isn't running away in fear, but it's a bold witness throughout the world of your goodness and your forgiveness and the gospel that is true. Root that into us as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.